From the Associated Press comes a story, I might embellish this just a little bit, of a recent archaeological discovery in China. The Chinese researchers discovered, much to their surprise, a 2,000-year-old toilet. This toilet was complete with a stone seat and an armrest. Now, archaeologists found this antique facility and among other, uh, all places, the tomb of a certain king from the Western Han Dynasty dating back 206 BC to 24 AD. The king apparently, I guess, believed his soul would need to make a pit stop even after death so he went to the grave prepared. The archaeologists were amazed at not only the sophistication of this facility, but the similarity to today's facilities that we enjoy in our own homes. I guess it may even have had a small stack of Reader's Digest magazines next to it. <laughs> well, probably not. Imagine, though, spending all your time and effort digging through ancient Chinese ruins, watching your colleagues as they discover precious jewels and ancient pottery and scrolls and religious relics, and you're the lucky one to unearth, of all things, a primitive potty chair for a cranky king. Now, what are the chances of that? In fact, even imagine all the dinner parties where curious friends are asking what you discovered in China. And imagine trying to keep a straight face, oh well, trying to keep a straight face while you try unconvincingly to explain the glory of your job. You know, life is funny about doing things like that to us you don't always find what you're looking for. There are some things you'd rather not find, and there are times when you go looking for little jewels in life and you get an old king's toilet instead. And you say to yourself, you know, I could have gone all day without having discovered that. The Bible is a lot like that. We go looking through the Bible for jewels, little pearls of wisdom and hope and traditional family values, stories that are all cleaned up with no sticky mess, no dirt. But every once in a while, we come across a story in the Bible that is so full of scandal and sin and deceit and despair that we can't help but blush and wish it would go away such as in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbath, but David remained in Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed he walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. 
So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he, she, he lay with her, and she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked him how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was prospering. And David said unto Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I go, then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as my soul lives, I will do not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, wait here today also and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called to him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie in his bed with the servants of his Lord, but did not go down to his house. In the morning, it appeared that David wrote a, in the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. And then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the people of the servants of David fell and Uriah the Hittite was died also. Then Joab sent and told David all these things concerning the war and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you approach so near the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abelech? And was it not the woman who cast down a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in three beds? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite was also dead. So the messenger went and he came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against us and came out in the field 
Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall as, at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, so encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was done, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The word of God for the people of God. The story of David and Bathsheba would make some of the afternoon soaps look like Sesame Street. We call it the story of David and Bathsheba, but it's really about the story of David. David the king, the hero of all Israel, David the giant killer, the musician, the songwriter, David God's anointed one. It's the story about the greatest hero of Israel who goes to great lengths to get what isn't his, and an even greater lengths to undo what cannot be undone. And because it's a story of the real world with real people, it's a story about you and me and all of us here. It becomes a window through which we can see the world in all of its brokenness. And if we dare to look through that window long enough, if we dare to look through that window hard enough, we will not only see the outside world, but also see a reflection of ourselves in all of our brokenness and failings. And when that happens, the story not only is more than we really want to know about David, but it's also sometimes more than we really can bear or comprehend about ourselves. While Israel's army is off conquering and plundering and pillaging the Ammonites in the name of God, David, who is supposed to be out leading his troops, is talking to general, his general, Joab, probably on his cell phone, taking notes with his new Palm Pilot and get it checking out the weather with the World Wide Web. When all of a sudden, as he's walking around, he looks down and beholds this beautiful woman bathing. He takes one look at her and knows that he cannot live without her. And he knows he can have her because he's the king. So he sends for her. The scripture simply said he sent for her. She came to him. She laid with him and then went home. That's it. You know, no Merlot, no dancing, no romancing. It was over before it really started. David got what he wanted, got what he couldn't live without, and was done with her. But she wasn't done with him. Because it isn't too long after that faithful encounter that she sends him an email with the subject line that reads, I'm pregnant. Now David doesn't panic. 
hey, he's fought bigger giants than this before. He can handle this. He goes immediately to plan A. Plan A, which is to make the problem go away. All he has to do is get Uriah, her husband, together with Bathsheba, and no one will question the issue of paternity. But you see, Uriah, unlike David, is off to war. No problem there. Once again, David gets out his cell phone and calls Joab and orders him to send Uriah home. And when Uriah arrives, David calls him in and orders to go home and get reacquainted with his wife. But you see, Uriah is a man of principle. He takes his oath of wartime celibacy seriously. Uriah will not do the deed. Plan B. The following day, David throws a party and sees Uriah gets drunk and then sends him home. But Uriah, even in his drunken state, is a man of integrity and refuses to go home. Now, I think at this point, you can already see a contrast between the moral characters of David, the anointed one of God, and Uriah, who isn't even an Israelite, but a mere Hittite. Already, David has broken three commandments. He has coveted his neighbor's wife. He has stolen what belongs to Uriah, and he has committed adultery. But there's more. Plan C. David's back on his cell phone telling Joab that Uriah's on his way back to war. When he arrives at camp, he is to send Uriah straight to the forefront of the battle where the fighting's the most intense. Then Joab is to draw back, leaving Uriah out in no man's land and see to it that he is killed. And Joab is a man of no small expediency. He doesn't ask questions, he simply follows orders of his king. What David orders is exactly what Uriah, uh, Joab does. Uriah is struck down and killed, the final deed is done, another commandment is broken. David's now a thief, he's an adulterer, and he's a murderer. But David has saved his skin. The threatening storm clouds that have been gathering over David seemingly blow past and he takes Bathsheba as his wife and she bears him a son. But it is about to pour down hard on David at this point in the story. If you do not know the rest of the story, go back to 2 Samuel and read chapter 12. It appears that David has dodged the bullet, the storm has been avoided, they averted a personal scandal of severe consequences to himself and to Israel. Once again, the king has killed a giant problem. But the inevitable storm, the inevitable storm will rain down upon David because he cannot hide his act from God. David may be through with his past, but his past is not through with him. I believe David's story reveals at least three unmistakable truths about human nature in the face of sin. Three ominous and threatening storm clouds that invariably will lead to a crushing downpour 
and it devastating floods in our lives. Hovering over David's life from the very outset of the story looms the cloud of aloneness. The whole drama takes place in the being, with David being alone on his rooftop as his rule of the leader of the Israelites was required him to be out with his soldiers at war. 2 Samuel 11.1 1 says, David remained in Jerusalem. He was all alone. And in his aloneness, the secret desires of his heart can be let out of the cage in the absence of anyone else to hold him accountable for his actions. The old proverb is true. The loneliest number that you'll ever know is number one. When we live independent and autonomous lives without anyone to challenge or to question our intentions and our actions, we are vulnerable to sin. I believe this is why the church as a body is extremely important. The fellowship of the church is there to assist, to hold, to love one another, but it is also there to question our actions and to challenge our intentions. So often we read in the papers or see on TV the shootings or the mayhems or the tragedies that are caused by others and it is caused generally by people who are alone. The story of Jesus in the wilderness, the showdown in the desert shows us the truth of that. It is not until Jesus is all by himself that the evil one pays him a visit and tempts him with all the power, with all the control, with all the fame that he could possibly ever want or need. Jesus battles the evil one alone and conquers the temptation, but even then God sends angels to minister to him in that hour. But there are others in the scriptures that are not so fortunate. I think of Judas acting all alone in his plotting, all alone in his silent act of betrayal. Had he shared his secret desires of his heart with Peter or James or John or I, even Jesus, perhaps he might have come to his senses and not be the instrument of Jesus' crucifixion. Think of Peter also. After Judas had done his deed, Jesus was led away from Gethsemane. And Peter, there he was alone downtown, sees this fire, goes over to warm his hands, and someone comes up and says, you're one of them, aren't you? Wandering outside his community of accountability and his community of support, Peter knows the depth of his personal weakness that he has never, ever thought possible. This is why Jesus sent his disciples out two by two, Jesus had first-hand knowledge of what life alone in the wilderness is like. So he set up a way to be in ministry so that we wouldn't be defenseless in the way of temptation. The truth of our life in Christ is that we all need human lifelines. We need the church. We need someone to whom we can turn in those hard moments when temptation shows his teeth at our door. David's story, the cloud of aloneness gives rise to the cloud of shameless desperation. 
as the story unravels and David loses control, he goes to any length to cover his sin, even to the point of murder. The more he loses control of the system, the further he drifts away from God, the presence of God, and cut adrift from the teacher of God's purpose, the anchor of his life. He's pulled deeper and deeper into dangerous waters, and as the shoreline slowly fades from sight, there is nothing he won't do to undo what has been done. It is an ironic habit of humans to run faster when they get lost. When things seem to slip through our hands, we're prone to grasp tighter. In David's case, his shameless act of desperation is to get Joab involved, to drag him into the mud of his own sin. David turns to Joab as the hatchet man, the one whose job it is to do what the king says without second-guessing and without reservation. It is said that a drowning man is difficult to rescue without the rescuer being pulled underneath. The drowning man loses all awareness of the situation and is concerned solely with his own survival, and he'll do anything to make it out in one piece. The deeper in sin that we go, the more devastating the consequences of sin becomes not only to us, but to those around us. Jesus reminds us that when we cause others to stumble, to stumble, we multiply our own sins. What we do to ourselves, we do to our, our, our total web of life. David couldn't stop. In the sticky web of his own sin, Joab and all Israel is unwittingly caught up with him. And the storm begins to build greater as the clouds of denial hover above. Now that Joab is brought into the fray of the death of Uriah, David says to him in verse 25, do not let this matter trouble you. In other words, it's nothing. You know, these things happen in war. It's just life. And we tend to do that too. We can rationalize just about anything in order to put it behind us and move on. In the face of sinfulness, we only see what we want to see. I read recently that the employees of Microsoft are prohibited from using the word bug in reference to software problems or failures. At Microsoft, they don't have bugs. They have what they call issues. Sounds a lot better, doesn't it? A lot cleaner. We have issues. I'm not dealing with failure, we say. It's not sin I'm struggling with. I'm working through some issues in my life. I have no sin. Well, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, we read, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's another way of saying deal with it. Not get over it, not get by with it, but deal with it because while we may be done with our past, our past is not done with us. The only way to stop chasing our own shadow is to turn and face the sun in all of its terrifying light. To name the darkness that holds us, 
to expose the devastation we've been working so hard to conceal, to face our responsibility and utter our inability to free ourselves of it of our own, takes perhaps more courage to do than any of us would ever dare to believe. But Christ, like the prophet Nathan was to David, Christ is on his way to help us face the truth and come to the light. Christ won't save us from the inevitable storm and downpour that we have created, but he will not allow us to be swept away only to be drowned. He comes not to sink us. He comes not to condemn us. He comes, in fact, to transform us. We can hear, if we listen carefully, the words of God in the clashing of the thunder and in the crackling of the lightning. And with the thunder and the lightning comes the awful rain, and with the rain comes a powerful, painful revelation, the terrifying truth that leads the way out, the way up, and the way home to God. We may be done with our past, but our past is not yet done with us. That sounds a lot like judgment to those on the run, but for those who no longer keep up the frantic pace and have turned their lives to Christ, it is the breaking of the storm, it is the dawning of grace, and it is the beginning of a new day. Amen. Let us pray. Most merciful Father, We ask, O oh Lord, that you look into our lives and where there is darkness, you bring light. Where there is trouble, bring your soothing calm. Enter our hearts, O oh Lord. Flush out any sin that remains. Take us past the storms of our lives and into the new day. We ask these things in Christ Jesus, O oh Lord and Savior. Amen.